Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, this is the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shan, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tejada. Let's go! It's the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 19. Look out, Long Beach, California. We'll be haunting your convention center July 28th and 29th for Midsummer Scream, a massive Halloween haunt and horror gathering with your favorite spooky personalities, hundreds of booths and exhibitors in the Sinister Six, the Boo Crew themselves. They're coming to get you, Barbara. We'll be debuting our new T-shirts. We'll have cool free stuff to hook you up with, and we'll have some screen-used horror props from your favorite films on display. Tickets at MidsummerScream.org. If you use the code BOOCREW and check out out 25% off for you. Look at that. Now to the episode. We are joined by one of the most charismatic actors in film today. With an impressive and celebrated horror history, the legendary Bill Mosley. Here's stories about bringing to life characters like Chop Top from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Otis from House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects, and the upcoming Three from Hell. He'll take you along on a journey making music with Buckethead and Pantera's Phil Anselmo. Sounds like rock and roll to me in the screaming room. Hey, it's your old pal Chop Top here. Uh, I want to buy some uh, radio Add time on the Boo Crew podcast for this important message. Lick my plate, you dog neck. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for horror homework. Rock and roll and horror go together like peanut butter and chocolate. They both share a rebellious spirit, intense energy, and at times, an exploration into the dark side of humanity and the occult even. A lot of groundbreaking horror films can be described as punk rock in terms of the DIY ethic and no rules approach, carving the path of cinema to come. We celebrate rock and horror flicks. <laughs> All right, so when we think about rock and roll horror, a lot of things come to mind. This isn't what we watch, but I've been looking for an excuse to watch Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park again. Mm. <laughs> That's not what we watch. No! Because <laughs> it's not that good a movie. <laughs> we did travel back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. So the film that we watched was the great classic, Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah! Oh, yeah. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? Written and directed by Brian De Palma, the film was released on Halloween night, 1974, mm-hmm. by 20th Century Fox, subsequently bombed. Commercial and uh, critical failure. Everywhere in North America, except one place, Winnipeg, Manitoba. (laughs) (laughs) They have it nailed down to Winnipeg, Manitoba. Really? It played for four months (laughs) and then continued to play every Mm -hmm. Saturday for two more years. What was it about Winnipeg? The soundtrack to this film went gold based on Winnipeg sales alone. Oh, no. I loved it. There's a a documentary. We'll get into the movie in a second, but there's a documentary that came out, I think, last year, 2017 maybe, called Phantom of Winnipeg, and it's about this weird anomaly of how this film... Yeah, just... Took root. The community just, just loved it. And Aww. it's also, you know, I don't know if any of you have been to Winnipeg. Have you been to Winnipeg? Yeah, in, I've been in, to Winnipeg. In, in, in October. That's, <laughs> yeah. November, Talk about one December, of the coldest January. places in Canada to, <laughs> yeah. to be is Winnipeg. <laughs> so, yeah. So, we might as well just go to the movies and watch Fan of the Paradise. Wow. So... Band with Paradise introduces Jessica Harper, who uh, you may remember from Suspiria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, released a few years later. Also starring Garrett Graham, who a few years later starred in Demon Seed and later Child's Play 2. Mm-hmm. Longtime De Palma mainstay William Finley, 
And of course, Paul Williams, the great Paul Williams, savior and hero of the 1970s, Paul Williams, (laughs) (laughs) as the evil record producer, Swan. So the film is part gothic horror, part comedy part romance, mm-hmm. all rock opera. It's sort of a send-up of the music industry. Swan plays this evil record producer. The name Swan, played by Paul Williams, the character name was originally Spectre because the character was inspired by Phil Spector. He's a maker and breaker of musical stars. The film is really it's sort of an amalgam of Phantom of the Opera, Faust, with a bit of picture of Dorian Gray. It's got allusions to Frankenstein and Edgar Allan Poe's A Cast of Amontillado. Essences or homages, maybe, to Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. And it wouldn't be a Prime De Palma movie if it didn't have an uh, Alfred Hitchcock moment or two. Mm-hmm. That's a great shower scene, would you say? <laughs> it has a great opening that sets the whole stage, VO. Yes, that's done by Rod Serling. Which is pretty amazing. It's almost really? like an yeah. opening to a Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's <laughs> so it's just, it's just graphic. Cool. It starts super tight. And then as yeah. the graphic pulls out and it's a dead uh, swallow. And it's Rod Serling just setting up Swan and how he basically gives it, has given us every musical thing that's happened. He started the British invasion. He brought this, uh, the, you know, the 50s revival that they were experiencing in 1974. Like this whole laundry list, like setting him up as this kind of like a Phil Spector type, but, you know, this mega, you know, record producer guy, maker of hits. He's about to open the paradise, his big altar to uh, rock and roll, I guess. There's this songwriter and he, you know, the setup is he screws over the songwriter, sets him up, sends him to prison, takes all his music, which is all Faustian. And then the guy goes through this whole adventure, gets damaged, like half his face gets damaged and he puts on this outfit and he goes to the paradise, which is getting ready for its big opening night. And he's, you know, it's like very Phantom of the Opera-esque. He's in love with this one woman who's a singer and she's the only one who can sing his music. But the turn comes when Swan knows exactly who he is. Hey, you're the writer I screwed over. Listen, why don't we come make a deal? And they make a deal and this is deal with the devil thing. The film is just like one classic horror genre melding into another, melding into another, melding into another. It's really funny. And here's the kicker. You know, it has a lot of similarities to Rocky Horror Picture Show, but it came out a year before Rocky Horror Picture Show. It predates Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think, for my money. It's a better film than Rocky Horror Picture Show. I know there's a lot of uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show fans out there. I know it's a thing. I'm not a fan. It's a thing in Manitoba. (laughs) 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 And they still have Revival, Phantom of the Paradise, Greenings in Winnipeg. Not only do they have, they have a convention in uh, in Manitoba, in Winnipeg. Yeah, I forget the name of it, but there's a Phantom of the Paradise festival that they have. I think starting in like 2004, they started having this festival, annual festival just around this movie. Yeah, people are really passionate about it. They did like an Indiegogo to like do the documentary and had that whole trailer and everyone's just like talking about how much throughout their lives they watched this film and like the people of Winnipeg yeah yeah <laughs> wow that is so random when you see it, it's very even just watching the trailer it's very over the top very much like it has flair of Rocky Horror Picture Show but but it also has story yeah and it's and it has horror it's like a lot of it horror, is horror unexpected yeah that has a lot of unexpected twists and turns and at the end you know it's Brian De Palma he's like right. a master filmmaker he's yeah. bringing even though it's kind of hokey and over the top yep. there's this real tension that happens at the end where and it gets a little horrific you know like a little like scary like I don't know what's gonna happen and then you know it's and it's tight as fuck. It's 92 minutes and it feels like, you know, a massive movie. There's so much story happening. Yeah, there's a lot of great talent that worked on it. The editor was uh, Paul Hirsch. He like edited Star Wars. Yep. He edited Carrie. He's like, his list is like super long of like amazing films wow. that he did. 
But production designer was John Fisk, who did, um, he was nominated for There Might Be Blood, and he works with David Lynch, and he works with Terrence Malick. And a fun side note is that John Fisk was the production designer on Fan of the Paradise, and his set designer, who happened to be his girlfriend and now his wife, was Sissy Spacek. Yes, Whoa. and their daughter yes. is Skylar. I like Skylar. She's great. We started at the Hotel Cafe, and sitting in the audience was Sissy Spacey. Sissy. Yeah. Nice. And Lauren was freaked out. <laughs> Not because, oh my God, it's Sissy, it's because, holy shit, Carrie. Right, yeah. That's freaky. Totally. Holy shit. Like, scared. Yeah. The, set, the set dresser from Family of the Paradise is here. <laughs> How are the songs? The songs are really good. I mean, yeah. Paul Williams is a, you know, Academy Award winning songwriter and known a lot for, you know, well, known for the Muppets, working with the Muppets, and that's what I first knew him from. But, you know, he's a little Enos in uh, Smokey and the Bandit. You know, he's everywhere in the 70s. And, but this was like the first time he started in a movie and he wrote all the music the score was nominated for an academy award yeah and it's catchy you know it's rock opera-esque yeah and in fact at one point you know there's this sort of uh like almost like doo-wop-y group that appears throughout doing numbers the juicy fruits the juicy fruits (laughs) but at one point de palma was looking to hire at first he's going to hire the rolling stones and then he's going for the who wow both of which are too expensive yeah (laughs) (laughs) so he got actors he got actors who could sing the fandom for this is super rich in fact paul williams is currently working with guillermo del toro on the the stage musical version of Pan's Labyrinth. Really? What? Yeah. So th- wow. Well, Pan's Labyrinth actually had a lot of amazing music. Yeah. Really yeah. pretty, like choral music. Yeah. So, and, and it's because of Del Toro's love of Phantom of the Paradise that he wanted to work with Paul Williams on the stage musical version of Pan's Labyrinth. That's awesome. The movie is... Yeah. It's, it's outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's another fun fact is... While they were filming the movie, the character Swan, his record label is called Swan Song, but they got sued by Led Zeppelin. Just <laughs> yeah, think of that, right? Yeah. So they had to change it while they were filming. So some things were just too hard to change. So there's some really bad like optical graphics where they just had to mask out <laughs> Swan Song with something right. else. Before CGI. <laughs> so yeah. So now it's just death records. Death records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, there's another fun fact here is Swan's Thug. The character's name is uh, Arnold Philbin, uh, which is a tribute to Mary Philbin, who starred as Christine in the 1925 film version of Phantom of the Opera. Because the movie died, there wasn't like a lot of press or no one did much press. Three years later, really the only thing that happened, three years later, Paul Williams appeared on the Brady Bunch Variety Hour <laughs> <laughs> and sung one of the songs from Phantom of the Paradise. Check it out. <laughs> totally worth viewing. Yes. Totally worth If you haven't seen it, check it out. Get ready to rock. <laughs> Return of the Living Dead is not only rock and roll, <laughs> it's punk rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. In the dark of the night, something strange is going on. The Return of the Living Dead. We're dealing with music. It's 1985, The Cramps, yep. 45 Grave, wow. TSOL, Flesh Eaters, and The Dam. So not only Damn. punk rock, it's spooky punk rock. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 1985, directed by Dan O'Bannon, and screenplay written by Dan O'Bannon. And Dan wrote a lot of stuff. Dark Star, Alien, Total Recall. And he did some visual effects for Star Wars. Like, he was a, an artist, so when he got picked to direct this, he was already on board writing the elaborate storyboards. And wow. I've seen them. Wow. Like, yeah. They're intense. They look cinematic before they even start filming this movie. 
Stanzi Stokes casted it and she did Terminator and Silent Night at Deadly Night. So she's a real casting director. And her whole thing was she wanted kids that weren't known. I saw it when I was 19 in the theater and I was stoked because they're not 100% punk rock, but like you get the feeling that they're kids and I didn't know I recognized any of them. So right. it kind of gave you the belief that it was, they could be real kids. And they got one of the greatest punk rock lines ever. You think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's on that. Suicide. The punkest of the crew yep. says that, and that's some hard shit. <laughs> that was some shit, you know. We were like, like we live by that shit. We were like, uh-huh. hell yeah. You think it's a fucking costume? This is a way of life. <laughs> <laughs> that was Suicide, who was the super punk rock guy. Then you kind of had the nerdy punk rock guy named Scuzz. And this kid, Brian Peck, was cast as a nerd in a lot of movies. They cast him as a punk rocker. Then you had Spider, who was kind of like a new waver, kind of gap band meets a little bit like Prince. He was cool. You had Casey. She was like really brass, you know, and it kind of covered everybody. Chuck was like the straight looking kid, maybe like the blueprint of like maybe a ska nerd, you know? Yeah. And then Trash, they called her legs. Initially in the script, she was legs, but Trash was the one that uh, she got naked. And that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) It was was the the 1980s. (laughs) I just love the cold open of like, it opens up July 1984 in a medical supply warehouse. And the boss guy, the foreman is named Frank. He's kind of a know-it-all. He knows a lot. And there's a younger guy, Freddie. Freddie's this hip kid with an earring, cut off shirt, muscular, a punk rocker, but not that hardcore, but he's definitely a cool kid. And Frank is telling him this and that. And he says, you know what? I'm going to show you these military drums that are in the basement that have been left here. And they go down and they check this out. Frank opens up the uh, lid of the barrel and there's a fucking zombie face looking at us. (laughs) (laughs) On the side of the barrel, it says this barrel is a property of the army. (laughs) In case of emergency, call 1-800-54-8000. So there's an emergency. You already know there's an intense thing. (laughs) Freddie's like, well, what happens if this leaks? And uh, Frank goes, this isn't going to leak. This is is army, you know, core engineer stuff. And he hits the barrel and it freaking leaks. And the smoke comes out and they both pass out and cold open title sequence return of the living dead (laughs) and uh from there it gets crazy ultimately what they do is they burn i mean spoiler alert we've all seen it the premise they burn one of the bodies and it it goes into the atmosphere and and then it rains and then the rain comes down and the graveyard and then all the zombies come out and the punk rockers have to defend themselves. I think it's a great film. I think it holds up. And the zombies, it was the first time that I ever saw zombies move this fast. And the first time there's reference of the eating brain. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that movie really yeah. set the lore for all zombie movies to come, really, yeah, I right? Think so. I think so, yeah. because before that, zombies were lethargic, yeah. slower moving. The old uh, George Romero zombies. Right. right. The old school, yeah. Yeah, it really it took it up a notch. I love the poster art for yeah. that movie. It's yeah. so rad. Mm-hmm. It was a zombie with a mohawk, right? Yeah. 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 I remember seeing that when I went to see Ghostbusters when I was a kid going, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Even Ghostbusters is a little bit much. <laughs> Gozer, key master of Zool. Yeah, that was creepy, man. The shit in the lady's fridge. Oh. <laughs> they spent, I think, four million on it, which is a lot back then. Yeah, yeah that, that is. is a lot. It is a lot. It made Jeez. 14 million. It did well. Spawn some sequels. Zombies never die. (laughs) (laughs) Hit us. All right, man. We got 2009 straight out of Canada. It's a movie called Suck. When darkness falls 
and evil rules the land. It's time to rock. We're rolling. Suck. Yeah. Wow. I've not seen it. I've heard oh, of it. Oh, really? Go nobody show, nobody watched this? Nobody picked this? Oh, great. Yeah. Directed and written by Rob Stefaniuk. He also stars in the movie. Also stars Jessica Perry and Malcolm McDowell. But that's not it, kids. Alice Cooper's in the movie playing the bartender. Moby is in the movie playing this guy named Beef in a douchebag rival band. <laughs> <laughs> beef, beef. That's a, there's a character in *Phantom uh, of the Paradise* named Beef as well, <laughs> which is funny because he's a vegan or something, right? Yeah, he that's is. true. Yeah, yeah. Moby. And then we got Henry Rollins, who plays Canada's favorite Rocket Roger DJ. <laughs> <laughs> and we got Iggy Pop, who plays Victor, a character who's a record producer. Oh, but that's not it, kids. From the band Rush. <laughs> no way. Alex Levinson. Wow. <laughs> Rush. Of plays course. A border Patrol agent. <laughs> this movie does not get more rock and roll than this, man. It's a movie I've never even heard of, to be honest with you. It's a unique one. I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this up and watch it. All these characters are in it. It's got to be interesting, right? First five minutes sucked me in. Literally sucked Suck. me in. Yeah. <laughs> Movie's about a band, a band on tour, and they kind of suck. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, uh, the writer, director, and the lead character, Rob, you know, he's, he's in this band, and I don't know, they're kind of doing that whole like 90s alternative, you know, and they do kind of suck. And then that female in the band the bass player she gets seduced by some guy in the uh, audience and then later that night you find out the next day what well, you know why she went missing and all that she shows up and it's like oh she's a vampire so now she's like craving blood and people are noticing her they're like oh she's the star of the band so slowly the band starts to get better on tour they're crossing from canada now to the u.s they're playing some new york shows and they're idiot of a douchebag tour manager is like oh i booked you guys showcase shows and this and this with the label reps and this and this and it turns out that every show they play just sucks it just, just gets worse and worse and it's usually the guy's all talk you know but this girl's a vampire and it turns out she seduces people in the audience you know they're like oh wow she's great you know one thing leads to another more members of the band become vampires <laughs> halfway through the movie there's a twist where all of a sudden it becomes the movie crossroads and you're like what the hell's going on, right? It's not a Robert Johnson movie, and you know, there's no Ralph Macchio in this movie, but yeah, the premise The Crossroads pretty much factors into this movie. So as the band continues the tour, more members become vampires, and they end up being a better band. Like, they, they start to rock now, they're selling records, you know, but they're eating their way through the US. They're like, <laughs> you know, fuck you, I'm gonna eat you too, you know? It's got some great comedy moments. I thought it was gonna be more of a hit and miss movie, and I found myself actually laughing at some of these lines. It was actually pretty funny. They could have gone the route of being like very gory, something like Zombieland, but they didn't. They didn't show you too much gore, but enough where they set up a certain scene which made it really funny. Like, there's a great slurpy scene in a convenience store with, with the vampire girl and the, the guy behind the counter. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. All these cameos are fantastic, especially the Moby one. I recommend it. Check it out. It's on Video On Demand. You can rent it, buy it, whatever. It's something I've never even heard of. And they did something really cool. They recreated scenes from all these classic rock albums. So, for example, there's a scene where the band's crossing the road, and it's like a reenactment of Abbey Road Beatles. And there's another one where they're covered up in a Union Jack uh, cover, and it's like the cover of the Who, the Kids Are Right. Aside from some of the soundtracks from some of these bands, director, writer, Rob, he also performed some of these songs. So I guess he's in a band or something, you know, some other guys. And one little fun little trivia side note is that uh, they had no budget for like anything to make this movie. And it's got some really cheesy, silly transitions. Like, you know, it's like they're showing the band like fly back east and they show a little 
like plane, like flying in the air. And so some silly transitions, but they're funny. It kind of works in the context. The movie makes fun of itself. Like, it, like don't take it serious because they did not take it serious. It's just a silly movie, but it's fun. Since he had no budget, Alice Cooper actually provided all the wardrobe for everything he wore. And he got some crazy outfits in this movie because like, I can't reveal who else he plays. He's, he's not just a bartender. He's somebody else in this movie. And he shows up and he provided every piece of wardrobe except for one. I can't reveal why, but there's one piece he did not provide that's it check it out suck the poster it's all there though you see her and you see yeah Iggy yep. pop there Iggy. alice yeah. cooper <laughs> malcolm <laughs> everybody's there yeah. suck with the fang the yep. s and the k malcolm mcdowell plays eddie van helsing Ooh. eddie van helsing <laughs> <laughs> so you know exactly what he's doing exactly For what sure. he's doing the girl kind of looks like avril lavigne on the poster it's not no. Who's the girl? Jessica Perry. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she looks great. Yeah. Like, it's a great looking poster. It's a fun movie if you just want to like mindlessly laugh. <laughs> what we saw, probably unexpected, but very rock and roll. 2009's Jennifer's Body. Oh. oh. Yeah. We always share your bed when we have slumber parties. Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil. Not high school evil. Everybody seen Jennifer's body? Yeah. Double yeah. yeah. uh, Cody, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Released September 18th, 2009. Made for 16 million. Grossed 31.6 million at the box office. Written by Diablo Cody in 2006. The very same year she wrote her hit film, Juno. Directed by Karen Kusama, who also did Girl Fight and Flux, The Invitation, and had a segment in 2017's all-female-created horror anthology flick XX. Stars Megan Fox as Jennifer Check. Her and her best friend Needy, played by Amanda Seyfried, go to a rock concert at a local club in their small town of Devil's Kettle. When Jennifer is lured into the band's van, she returns as someone or something completely different with a taste for human blood. Yep. I really liked it. I know there are people that didn't like it. it. It's kind of weird, a little quirky, but I thought it was really fun. And I liked the music and the premise and I was into it. The film is very polarizing as it was generally panned by critics at large and reviewers all over the place. It's basically split into two camps. Those who didn't get it and those who think it's a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely one of the ones who think it's a masterpiece. It's very quirky. The script is very quirky quick-witted and sharp-tongued. Lines go by and you kind of look back like, wait, wait, did she just say what I think she said? Oh my God, she did. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. it's, it's very brash. Jennifer calls her best friend things like Monistat and Vagisil as pet names. <laughs> right. And this type of dialogue continues over and over and it draws you in and it's so fun to watch in that sense. And just like the dialogue, they pull the same feet with the horror that's equally shocking with these crazy scenes. There's incredible jump scares that actually pay off. It's got a real rock and roll attitude, an amazing score and soundtrack that is used in very unexpected and delightful ways that kind of set off your neurons. There's a metalcore track by It Dies Today called Sacred Heart. After a particularly somber moment in the film, Jennifer walks across a football field to greet a grieving football player. And this like metal track is just playing, which is a total opposite of whatever's going on in the film. And they, they do things like that. It really fucks with your head. The whole movie is kind of right. designed as a, a total mind fuck, which is amazing. It's very ADD, which is I love that kind of reminds me of from Dust Till Dawn in that sense. Everything that can go crazy fucking happens. It's, it's, it's nuts. They don't hold any punches as far as the graphic gore effects goes. They're all done by K&B, who famously works on Evil Dead and all these amazing movies. We know who K&B are. It does not get better than this. It also explores 
awkward relationships growing up as a teen. You all have that friend who's a bad influence. You all have that friend your parents don't want you hanging out with. You all have that friend you sit and wonder, why is this person even really my friend? (laughs) They treat me like shit. You know, you have that. It kind of explores that and it's kind of a coming of age story in that sense too. Florence and the Machine, whole Panic at the Disco, Haley Williams, Silver Sun Pickup. So there's a bunch of bands playing throughout the movie. Megan Fox had to lose 15 pounds and she got down to 97 pounds to play this like possessed frail girl and (laughs) I don't even know how she did it, but she looks really sickly and she stayed out of the sun so she could get that pale look so she didn't go anywhere near the sun for like months. The title of the song, Jennifer's Body, is by Hole, Courtney Love, Devil's Kettle, which exists. There's like a waterfall. It's a true thing. We looked it up because I was convinced that they made it up. But if you throw things into the devil's kettle, they have no idea where it goes. Like they threw a car in there, right? The legend is they've thrown refrigerators, cars. There's a local legend all around the the Devil's Kettle Falls. What happens is that? Yeah, where is this? It's in Judge Magny State Park in Minnesota. The water disappears into a glacial pothole. But yeah, they've tourists go there, throw boxes, ping pong balls, all this stuff to see if it comes out anywhere, and no one can find anything that comes out. Can I throw my crippling anxieties into there? There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But it's used very fittingly, very cool way they use it in the movie, which is genius. It's a great setting for something like this. Wow. They used, which I'll never look at it the same, Hershey's chocolate syrup was used for Jennifer's black vomit, along with (laughs) some CGI. So it's really nasty. That's what it was. Um, There was a hose that would fit over her ear that she'd be able to control and spew all this Hershey syrup at everybody. I think if we get really bored during the summer with the kids, we're going to try that. Yeah, try that. (laughs) You got to film it. Yes. (laughs) Outside, for sure. A draft of the script was leaked online in early 2008. The role of the lead singer of the band in the movie, Low Shoulder, was modeled after the killer's Brandon Flowers and is played by Adam Brody. They're also considering real-life singers Pete Wentz or Joel Madden for the part. Diablo Cody makes an appearance as a bartender and a lesser-known Chris Pratt is in this movie as well. That's right. (laughs) We forgot that. Bar Lord. Yeah. Definitely see Jennifer's Body. I think it's a work of art. It's actually one of my favorite horror films of all time. It's up there. Fun fact. What? They threw out like most of the costumes. That's right. Oh, we actually yeah. tried to go. We tried to go back and get some of the costumes from the costume designer who's in Vancouver. That's where they filmed it in Vancouver, oh, wow. Canada. Actually, she said, "Oh yeah, we just donated them all." Yeah. Yeah. They have these great prom dresses, like uh, covered in blood and stuff. Yeah. And she's like, "Yeah, usually in Vancouver, you see a lot of homeless people walking around wearing like FBI outfits." <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we don't keep it. Like, all right, cool. So there you go. This is the Boo Crew Podcast. Did everything you want, Mister Honix. Just let us go. We did what you said. Well, you know, first of all, I didn't say anything, and second of all, I'm calling the shots. Consider me fucking Willie fucking Wonka. This is my fucking chocolate factory. You got it, my factory. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a true cinematic icon and a legend in the horror community. He's brought some of the most beloved and celebrated characters in the entire genre to life. 
Chop Top in 1986's Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Luigi Largo in Repo the Genetic Opera, <laughs> Otis in Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, and the upcoming Three from Hell, to name just a few. He brings a personal love of the genre to his craft. He's one of the most prolific and captivating performers with the innate skill of turning scripts into the most quoted and memorable lines in the annals of dark entertainment. We are honored to welcome Bill Mosley. Hey, lick my plate, you dog dick. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Can you say that on the on the podcast? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, first of all, let's talk about Bill Mosley, the horror fan, and get into your earliest memory of being impacted by the genre. Well, first of all, I'm glad I found this place. Thank God for GPS. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a good thing. You know, actually, the first horror movie I think I ever saw was probably in 1956 or seven. Whenever it came out, I was a little boy, and I was in New York City uh, in Manhattan visiting my grandmother. And she took me to see a movie called The Blob mm-hmm. oh, and nice. uh, with Steve McQueen. It was first run. It was in the theaters back then. And uh, she took me to see it. I loved it in the theater. But then when we went back to her apartment and I was put to bed, I do remember lying in bed and the door to the hallway was slightly ajar. The, the hallway was lit And at the foot of my bed was a dresser with a mirror. And somehow the light from the open door on the mirror, it created something that just scared the crap out of me. And I do remember that, you know, calling for granny in that weak, frightened voice. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so that was uh, strike one. And it was actually great because many years later, when I first came to Los Angeles on the heels of my uh, success in Texas Chainsaw 2 back in 1986, the first job I got in Hollywood was in the remake of The Blob. And I do remember that that was, uh, was supposed to be one day's work. I was soldier number, I can't remember if it was number two or number three. <laughs> Never take a character with a number. Always insist, <laughs> insist on a name. So The Blob was my first scary movie. And then the second one was when my mom, my facilitator, she ended up taking me to see a double feature, The Fly and The Return of the Fly. And that was, I think that was in Wakanda or Crystal Lake, you know, not too far. That's both Illinois. There's a real Crystal Lake, Illinois. <laughs> and, uh, and that was not too far from my home. And I was a little boy. For some reason, in that particular theater, they had a guy that had, like one of the ushers, had a, uh, like a mask of the fly. And he had like a claw. And I remember just sitting there watching... I think it might have even been the second one because there was a bigger fly head in the second one. <laughs> and, I, and I felt this little tap on my shoulder. I look over and it's like this claw and I look up and of course it's the fly. I <laughs> screamed my ass off and that was, you know, absolutely strike maybe two and three. I don't know. Was there a particular cinematic moment that drew you to the acting world? You know, I think it was just people getting a chance to look frightened and scream. I would practice that in my, you know, my bathroom mirror. I would just look into the mirror and I would pretend to see something coming from afar, some monster. And I would, you know, get that first of that kind of, you know, quizzical face. Like, what is that? Oh, 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 ah! 
and I and so got closer, and I would, you know, scream, and also my face, you know, I would make my face, you know, frightened, and uh, you know, so that was probably my earliest, you know, effort. Did you act before music or music before acting? You know, it was pretty much six of one, half dozen of the other in my family. My dad, uh, growing up in Northern Illinois, Barrington, good old Barrington. My dad was a country club Republican. He was the head of a tank car company in Chicago, and uh, there was a lot of railroad guy, you know, men in my family, the idea of you know, acting certainly as a profession was was not considered. <laughs> that was not part of the plan. My mom was uh, very artistic and uh, she played the piano. She played a lot of ragtime, a lot of Scott Joplin, a lot of Fats Waller. She got all of my two brothers and me. I'm the middle of three boys, no girls, which is, I guess, why God gave me two daughters. <laughs> goof on me like, <laughs> you know, and I'm very grateful for that, by the way. We're a musical family. Whenever we'd go on long car trips, my parents would sing a lot of different songs, you know, family songs. So we were very musical. And also in my little town of Barrington, there was a group called the Barrington Play Reading Group, I guess they were called. And basically it was a bunch of families every six months or so uh, stage a popular play. The host family would turn there. It would be a basically a dinner party in a show. The host family would turn their living room into whatever the play was supposed to be. And I was usually drafted as, or often drafted as one of the kids. So I think the first one I did, well, the first play I did was Sunrise at Campobello. And that was, uh, you know, Franklin, one of Franklin Roosevelt's sons. And, and my dad played Franklin Roosevelt. So we wrestled. So that was kind of fun. And then... Uh, <laughs> I was also in a play called The Lottery. It's basically a modern, very nihilistic play about how a town, presumably in the United States, keeps its population down. They have a lottery. And if you pick the, the black mark on the lot you uh, picked. Based on the yeah. Shirley Jackson yes, story? Yeah, 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 yeah. Was, yeah. I didn't say a whole lot, but at one point I had to go pick out of a hat during showtime. <laughs> and I went up and I, you know, I was just a kid and I picked out of the hat. And I ended up picking the black lot. And I wasn't supposed to. It was like, <laughs> it was hidden somewhere. And somehow when reaching in, I just kind of grabbed it. And I opened it up and I saw that it was, oh my God, this is the lot. And I remember kind of folding it back up, staying in character, going back to the adult that was holding the hat and beckoning them down and saying, I think I got the wrong one. Oh, and then, I showed them and they went, oh, uh, yes. And they took it and they put it back and they gave and they gave me another lot. They so. didn't they didn't throw you out center <laughs> no, stage and stone you to death. I wasn't killed. <laughs> <laughs> That's like uh, you call an audible, man. That's good. Right. Yeah, I called an audible. Yeah. If you could choose the art form of acting or the art form of music, what one would you prefer? You know, I really don't have a choice. Certainly acting has been my bread and butter. But I love music. You know, that's why I love, for instance, uh, Repo. When I did Repo, the genetic opera, Darren Bowsman, who directed it, came up to me before when he was casting Repo and said, we'd like you to be in our movie. And I said, well, that sounds great. And he said, yes, uh, you know, we know you can kill, but can you sing? <laughs> and uh, well, I had given him some cornbug CDs. And I oh, said, well, yeah. Darren, I, I gave you those cornbug CDs. He said, yeah, but can you sing? <laughs> oh, thank you, Darren. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> that movie was a lot of fun, though. I yeah. really dug that one. I love musicals. Well, they cool. auditioned me. I had to audition for it. There's a Japanese, he's kind of the prince of Japan, like, you know, the prince, the purple one, called Yashiki. And Yashiki has a studio, a sound studio in North Hollywood. And so I was called in. I was going to audition for the part of Luigi Largo. I remember going into the studio and there was Joe Bishara, who did the music, yeah. and who's, you know, obviously a fantastic yeah. musician and composer. And Darren and Terrence Zadunich, who wrote the play. And so anybody, you know, the brain trust, where they're the musical where, brain trust. Where and was that filmed at? That was filmed actually in Toronto, but we recorded it in Yashiki's studio in North Hollywood. And it was so funny because I've taken a singing lesson every Wednesday for, it's like 24 years. I go to oh, the Valley wow. every Wednesday. I go down there and warm up and then I sing either, it's either Eagles or Beatles at the wow. piano. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, with, my, with my singing can you, coach. Can you do That's one great. acapella right now for us? <laughs> I, I, did, I did Desperado at a little showcase that he put on that I, I had for many years just kind of uh, poo-poo just because I was frightened, you know, pretending it was, I wouldn't do that. But of course, I finally just decided, you know, I'm going to just do it. And do uh, it a Desperado right now? Yeah. <laughs> Desperado. Why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. Oh, you're a hard one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> But both of my daughters were, were there when, when I was, you know, I'm up on stage with a bunch of, you know, you know, like children. Well, you know, one at a time, mostly children. And then it was like, and here's Bill. It's like, oh, oh, this was a bad idea. And my daughters are both sitting in the, you know, it was in a restaurant. And they're both sitting at a table looking at me just laughing. Oh, Dad, you are, this is so lame. Like, oh. You know, so I followed one of the pussycat dolls in this repo audition and the pussycat doll that you know she was obviously I, I hope was there for a different part but she did great she was belting it out she was you know I think she threw in some leg kick you know, it was like Vegas it was Broadway it was like Ethel Merman and I just thought I am fucked I am fucked so but I had with my singing teacher I had practiced the song and it was night surgeon or something and so uh, i you know it was like okay bill you're next and it was like oh, oh here we go again anyway i went down they you know they put my headphones on put me in front of a mic they wanted me to kind of warm up or something so i started to warm up a little bit and i just thought oh my god this microphone is magic <laughs> it sounded so good it was like nice. hello it was like, Ooh. and it was so rich and full of golden tone. And so I, I was less afraid. And then they started playing the song and I started singing it. And I had worked on it with John Deaver, my singing coach. So I knew like how to get to from act one, two and three, you know, build the song or whatever I was doing. So I ended and I looked up and there in the control booth through the window, I saw all these guys beaming with their thumbs raised. That's like, a good yeah, sign, right? Nice. So yeah, I got the job. Yes. God bless America. Well, on the music, <laughs> on the music tangent again, talk about meeting Buckethead and doing the Corn Bugs project. That was like five albums you did with him. Yep. Did he meet you at a play? You were playing Timothy Lee. Theory, correct? Yes, yeah. I was. Early 90s here in Los Angeles, I was in a play called Timothy and Charlie, based on the fact that I guess one night in 74, Timothy Leary and Charles Manson were side by side in uh, solitary in San Quentin prison. The playwright, Tim Reel, based this two-act play 
on that encounter. And it was so funny because most people, when they hear that, they think, oh, of course you played Charles Manson. And it was like, no. no. <laughs> I played Timothy Leary. Charles Manson was played by an actor named Gil Gale, who's a great actor. We had about maybe 14 shows. We were in some little 99-seat theater above like American Rag on uh, La Brea. <laughs> yeah. And it was a cool, it's called the Lost Theater, needless to say. And um, Timothy Leary showed up at, I think, 10 of maybe 14 performances. Unreal. Wow. One night, he, you know, he stumbled in, kicked over the footlight and broke <laughs> Yeah, he was zoned, but he, he liked it. <laughs> you, uh, like, did you like it to hang out with him before, to build the character, or kind of no. create your own version of him? I created my own version of him because a lot of other actors, much better actors than I, turn, had turned down the part. Because he was a living guy. He was actually living in town, famous guy. And so they were intimidated by that. And I was too stupid to be intimidated, I guess. <laughs> First of all, like, you think of Charles Manson, we all know. We all know Timothy Leary, but I don't really know how he talks. So it'd probably give you more yep. freedom. You know, I just went for it. I figured that this is a very smart guy, but he also, what I brought to it, I guess, also was a physicality because. You know, he grew up in Southie in Boston. You know, that's a tough part of town. Irish Catholic streets. You know, there was a lot of... So there was a certain kind of a toughness to him. He seems so intellectual that a lot of times the misconception for many is that if you're intellectual, you're kind of soft or something, you yeah. know, not as physical. So I came in, I, yeah, I was like, you know, I had a fuck you attitude. Right. But also I was, you know, but very smart. Also, I went to Yale and he went to, and he taught at Harvard. So there right. was a grudge in oh, there yeah. too. Yeah. Fuck you, <laughs> so it all worked and, and he loved it. He he just, he couldn't get enough, I guess, of, of my portrayal or at least the, uh, the that particular show. And one night we had finished uh, another performance. Performance, and Gil Gale turned to me and said, I want you to meet my friend Buckethead. And <laughs> the guy with the, the KFC bucket on his head looks around <laughs> yeah, in the front row. <laughs> no, he was backstage. He was he was out of mask and Ooh, bucket. Yeah. Wow. wow. So I can't really say anything more about that. But, <laughs> uh, he might be the only one in those rooms. I remember he had a very, not, not feeble, but very delicate handshake. Sure. Not in Midwest. So it's like, you know, take what you got, what that's offered and shake it heartily, you know, squeeze it, <laughs> yeah. grab it, yeah. yank it. <laughs> and it was like, this little handshake and it was like and he had but he had long fingers almost like I compared him to string beans once but I don't think that's accurate <laughs> <laughs> maybe French right, right. French green beans right. and he probably came to yeah. the show but I mean he's a massive fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre well, yeah, all the it. movies yeah. And, yeah his buddy Gil had I guess told him that I was in this play and so he showed up because he was a Chainsaw fan yeah so we got to talk and I didn't really know I had never heard of him or knew nothing really about him Gil told me he was a guitar player and he was really good and everything and so uh buckethead uh we chatted a little bit and he said well, why don't you come down to santa monica i've got a friend with a, a little studio and i'm like an apartment building or something i'd let levy to go off his chop top on some music i've made wow. and i said yeah sure no problem the day we had planned on meeting i see what did i bring i brought a a cup of McDonald's coffee <laughs> and uh, very inspirational <laughs> and uh, and my bongos you know and I drove down in my Toyota Tercel EZ whatever. I, don't, I still don't know what EZ stands for <laughs> extra zoned uh, and then I, I went up to you know the apartment and he played me some songs which are on some of the Cornbug CDs and he uh, he just wanted me to go off his chop top so I just that's what I did I just kind of 
made stuff up. And it was so much fun. It really was, it was, you know, no pressure, a lot of fun. Didn't know who he was. I love Chop Top. So any chance I get, you know, I'm happy to do it. So made up some stuff. He was so happy with it that uh, he apparently was under contract to, I guess it was Sony Records way back when, to do an album called Giant Robot. Yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And I guess it was a little while after we had gotten together and, you know, done that session. He called up and invited me to come to New York to be on his album. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Now for the big time. Yeah, major label recording <laughs> artist, Bill Mosley. Yeah, right. I had it all planned, you know, my grandiosity. <laughs> and he said, you know, because I want you to go off his Chop Top on this album I'm doing. So I went, great. There was just a little nag. I mean, I didn't own Chop Top. And so I didn't think that would be a problem. But I called up a friend of mine who was a professor of copyrights at Loyola Marymount University, Jay Doherty. And I, you know, an old college classmate called him up and said, hey, am I cool to go off his chop top and do this thing? And he said, well, (laughs) you know... You don't really own the name or the character, so I would really recommend coming up with a different character. Mm -hmm. And I went... Uh, okay. All right. Thanks. You know, and hung up the phone. I thought, different character. It's <laughs> like, fucking Chop Chop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, come up with a different character. <laughs> Buckethead's going to freak, oh, right? going to freak. <laughs> so I didn't say anything because I wanted to get that. At least I wanted the flight to New York. So I... <laughs> I flew to New York, and uh, and he was staying at the Gramercy Park Hotel, where all the you know musicians. It yeah. was a very cool spot, and uh, so I showed up there and checked in. And he came back. He was working with Bill Laswell, was his producer. You know, out in Greenpoint Studios somewhere in Brooklyn and very, all very cool stuff. And uh, so Buckethead showed up and he was exhausted. He'd been working, you know, 12, 15 hour day. And he said, hey man, how's it going? I go, great, great. He goes, so well, you ready to, ready to go into the studio tomorrow? I said, well, yeah. I said, yeah, there's, there's only one, one uh, slight, <laughs> slight problem. <laughs> oh, shit. Now... On the plane, I had been thinking, okay, well, I got to come up with a new character. So I was trying to like, you know, I had like a little notebook and I was trying to like, you know, like flying, you know, oh my God, we're, there's the Mississippi, hurry up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> come up with a new character. And uh, so I started thinking about a farm, cornfields, and then I started thinking about, I thought of the ranch hands and I just saw like a bunch of like little dismembered hands running around, <laughs> ranch hands, and then I... I was then I was thinking about a scarecrow and I thought okay scarecrow and then I thought scare shoe crow bird so I came up with this name shoe bird scary scarecrow and uh, that's what I came up with you know and I I get to the Gramercy Park there's Buckethead okay so are you ready to go tomorrow so I said well you know I I talked to this guy and he said "I, I shouldn't do chop top so when I said that, I've never seen a human being literally his face darken. <laughs> I mean, he was already tired. It's just whatever light was there completely dimmed down. And I was thinking, oh, I'm fucked. Here goes my career. <laughs> my music career. <laughs> Damn. And uh, so, uh, and I said, but, but I, I, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a name. And he goes, uh, he goes, well, what is it? And I said, well, uh, I said, uh, Shoebird, uh, the, the, the scarecrow. And he's like, he's not, he's not kind of, it doesn't look like he's going for it. And uh, there's a long pause. And then he goes, well, I've got a name. And I go, what is it? And, and he goes, no, no, no. And I go, no, no, really, what is it? And he goes, 
No, no. And I go, come on, man. <laughs> My career. <laughs> My rock dreams. <laughs> and, uh, and he looks at me and goes, onions. <laughs> I went. Onions. <laughs> I said like like onions the scarecrow and he goes yeah and I go that's, that's awesome <laughs> onions the scarecrow that is cool <laughs> so onions it was onions the scarecrow what the heck and, uh, so the next day we went into the studio with Bill Laswell and uh, we did a couple of songs the best of which or the most you know the strongest I guess was onions unleashed yeah. and i wanted i wanted unleashed spelled with an o instead of a u so okay onions <laughs> unleashed. and uh and that's on that giant robot album that yeah. finally came out i mean nice. many years later it's I mean, an incredible that, album yeah, too yeah it's yeah. an amazing album and i also did something called i come in peace which yeah. was basically a giant bucket head you know like godzilla coming into tokyo and you know, all this different stuff. That was more like a radio announcer. So, right, right. Yeah, that got us off to a good start. And then, yeah, five albums later. And what were you doing? Were you just making the albums whenever he had time and getting, yeah. selling them at conventions or having them to, to yeah. give to people at conventions and things well, like that? Well, that was my idea. I mean, I had no idea about uh, corn bugs or anything. Corn bugs came from uh, just hanging out at his mother's house outside of Los Angeles. Yeah. Fiddling around. And his mom had like a backyard with some, uh, like a vegetable garden. She had a bunch of corn that was like, you know, 12 <laughs> feet tall. <laughs> corn, you know, and I was like, and they were, you know, his buddy was like, uh, you know, doing a video tape of us and I'm kind of goofing around. And I said, oh yeah, hey, corn, you know, and I, I grabbed an ear and started talking into it like it was a microphone, like, oh, all cars, corn, all cars. And then I, then I, I peeled it a little bit and they, it was infested with these oh. bugs. You know? oh. oh my God, corn bugs, corn bugs. <laughs> so, so that was, uh, that was the birth of the name. And he, he said, you know, oh my God, that's the name of our group so and then we would just basically just record in his rehearsal studio right in san dimas i remember giving the guy that ran the place like some extra money to, to record it on dat digital audio <laughs> oh, team i didn't yeah. know what dat was yeah so that's why the you know the recording ended up you know they all ended up pretty good Wow. Nice. And we just went in and, and I remember the first time we were in there, the guy who ran the studio had, I guess he had a band called Shoe Face or something. Cause you know, he was known as Shoe Face Bob. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> don't know. Shoe Face. Not, not Shoe Bird. All Bucketheads friends had crazy names, right? There was Pinch Face, who was a drummer. Maximum Bob was yeah. a singer yeah. in the Kelly uh, Bees uh, and all those yeah. people. Yeah. Throat Rake Throat was the bass player. That's yeah. right. Yeah, man. That's, that's right. right. Wow. So, uh, so they, yeah, and, and so Shoeface said, well, what are you guys going to do? And I said, well, first of all, if you could record it on dad, you know, I think I had to pay him 50 bucks or something. It was a ransom back then. Yeah. And, uh, but he, he did. And he said, well, what, what exactly do you have in mind? I had a pad of, and, a, and some paper. I think I'd brought some poems or something to, to declaim, you know, over the music or whatever. And I said, well, uh, here, let's do, we want to do these five songs. And I just started writing these weird names, meat, rotten meat, pigs are people too. You know, just all these different, you know, just spot the psycho. I don't know what, you know, whatever, whatever we were doing. And I just, I just gave him these names. He said, oh, okay. Like we had, these were songs that were prepared or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then Buckethead started to play and I started to make stuff up. And that, that was the beginning of Corn Bucks. Wow. So and, it's not happening anymore. 
No, no, no. No, about, I think about eight years ago, uh, I got a call from Buckethead and he said, I, I just won't be talking to you anymore. What? Really? Yeah. Or for a while. And it's been eight years, so. Are you kidding me? But that's, that is kind of par for the course. He is his own person. I figured that was, got a couple of years out of our right. collaboration. Actually, it was more like 10. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. He's around. He's alive there. and well. Yeah. yeah no, I, I, mean, I, he's I love very Buckethead. super yeah. active. Super yeah. active. Yeah. Like, then one of the most prolific guitar players probably of all time. It's yeah. amazing how many yeah. things he releases constantly. Yeah. He's like, like 200 CDs. Yeah. It's something. insane. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I want to go back to acting and I want you to take us back to the first time you saw the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and what inspired you to do the, I guess what kids would do nowadays is make a YouTube video and maybe get discovered. Well, Bill made a film that Texas Chainsaw Manicure, yes. indeed, which ended up getting you into the trajectory and into kind of film history. How did the first one affect you that tweaked you and made you decide to go and do this short? Well, I was back in 1975 or six, maybe. I was uh, working as assistant to the president of the Andrews Gunite Swimming Pool Company. <laughs> Naturally. In, in, in North Billerica, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. This is, after, this is my you know life after college. And I remember driving around one day in my uh, red Vega wagon, and I drove past a uh, a marquee. It was like a drive-in theater out, you know, somewhere in the in the boonies outside of Boston. And on the marquee were the words "Texas Chainsaw Massacre," and I just looked at that and I went, "What the hell is that?" Because <laughs> <laughs> I in in college, I uh, with a great guitar player, another great guitar player named Gary Lucas. Actually, we ran a film series at Yale called "Things Go Bump in the Night." So Tuesday at midnight, after everyone was flushed from the, the library, we would show horror movies. And so Gary went on to play, by the way, with Chris Buckley and with Captain Beefheart. Wow. Oh, oh wow. man. He is, Gary's the man. I had a certain special love of horror movies throughout my life. And seeing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, see those words, really just, you know, it was like really blew my mind. Mm -hmm. I thought, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, a couple of months later in Boston, kind of the Times Square of Boston is called the Combat Zone. And there was an old theater in the Combat Zone called the Paramount, which was obviously, you know, had been big art deco, fabulous in the, like the 30s and 40s. And had now it had long since fallen into disrepair <laughs> and was now kind of this funky theater where like funky people would see funky films. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I noticed that, that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was playing one afternoon. It was a, like a Sunday afternoon. It was a double bill. And the first feature was uh, Enter the Dragon. Oh, okay. wow. And then the second one was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> quite the double feature. I, uh, <laughs> I brought it up down. <laughs> so it was like five bucks. You know? so, um, so I went in. I'd never seen a Bruce Lee movie before. So that was a lot of fun. And the crowd was like, you know, funky crowd. And they were into it. They were, you know, yelling at the screen, kick his ass, Bruce. And, you know, it was great. It was a lot of fun. It was a wonderful experience. We all bonded and everything was cool. And then the opening couple of shots of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the tortured uh, violin string yeah. and uh, the slow shots of the uh, melted corpse, just a, a slow strobe. And I think everybody just like knew something was going to, you know, this was not right. <laughs> yeah. And nobody said a word through the whole movie. It just like freaked us all out. Wow. Especially after coming in there with Under the Dragon. Right. And this thing. <laughs> right. And for me, you know, whenever I've been scared at, uh, you know, at horror movies, I usually like look for the mistake. You know, there's going to be a 
a boom shadow, something is going to, you know, they're going to go, oh, you go, oh, okay. You it's a movie. Back. Yeah, it's right, a movie. Yeah. Right. What am yeah. I doing? But it it's starts off with this disclaimer, right? Yes. Uh, read, yes. Read by, uh, what's his name? Uh, John. John La Roquette. Yes. Right. Yeah. It, it sells you as a, hey, this really happened. Yeah. So uh, in the first five seconds, you're like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you had the melted corpse and then, you know, then it just goes on. And then, of course, I think the first shot of the kids in the van is like a, you know, a dead armadillo on its back yeah. on the side of the road. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it just freaked me out. I had been into a kind of a hippie spirit in college where I thought, you know, we're all one man and, you know, and kind of doing that kind of an LSD type thing and and you know hey man and when I saw that movie I just said you know these guys are not spiritual I, I always <laughs> I, I thought that I could I, that, that I could probably relate to anyone on yeah. some you know spiritual level, but those guys, uh-uh. and it, so it really hurt me. It, it hurt my worldview, yeah, yeah, considerably. I walked out of there just like, oh my god, and I was really damaged so much so that for the next couple of years I chased the movie. It freaked me out so much. I figured that the only way to get over it was to see it like multiple times <laughs> and, and it becomes so I get so used to it yeah, you're it, desensitized it wouldn't yourself. have that same power but that was back in the days you know that was like you know 70s 80s before they even had VHS right yeah. Yeah. so I had to actually go see it in theaters and you know I chased it around and I did finally see it on VHS all that other stuff it, it didn't do any good it just made it worse really <laughs> it really made it worse and um, I was uh, working one summer on a dude ranch in uh Cora, Wyoming. You know, I was living in New York City, but I was getting a little, uh, you know, a little wasted in New York. So yeah. I went out. My dad had been a dude at this particular ranch. And uh, so I went out to spend a summer kind of, you know, bucking bales and <laughs> shoeing mules or whatever you do out there. <laughs> you know, to get kind of build myself back up. Yeah. And um, so I was out there. And one day I was digging a hole or chopping some wood. And I was with this kid who was like a 15 year old. I was probably in my early 30s at that point. And this kid, um, John Wright, and he was from uh, Geneseo, Illinois. He had been raised, I think he was an orphan or he had been adopted by a, a family that ran a, a funeral parlor in uh, Geneseo. John was already a wired kid at 15. <laughs> and so he'd been sent by his parents to this ranch to kind of make him into a more compliant citizen. Or, sure. you know, whip him into shape. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Whip him into shape. <laughs> and he was a sugar nut. Uh, and uh, which, of course, was a telltale sign, as we were later to find out. But he was a sugar nut, which meant that every morning at breakfast, he would have the frosted flakes. He would drink the bug juice. Fudge sickles, uh. candy bars. I mean, he was constantly dosing. And wow. uh, when he would work under the hot sun, do some manual labor, he would go into what I called uh, sugar deliriums. <laughs> and he would just be, you know, like chopping away or digging or whatever he was doing. And he would start to go into this kind of equus character of like, just he would spew out all of these different uh, voices, radio jingles, characters, cartoon people, you know. 
and just this blather. And I would usually turn a deaf ear to it. And one day he was blathering away, you know, ah, Captain Crunch, you know, doing, <laughs> doing this deal. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, out of this blather, he just uh, suddenly he just went, Texas Chainsaw Manicure. <laughs> and then back to Captain Crunch and, and Crusader Rabbit, whatever he was doing. And it was like, Texas Chainsaw Manicure. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was like, what? <laughs> And I went back to the bunkhouse, of course, it was a ranch, and uh, I got out my notebook and I wrote out this like little scenario, a little five-minute scenario. A woman goes to beauty parlor, gets her hair done, it's under the dryer, what else do you want? I'll take a manicure, and out from the back comes Leatherface. Right. And saws her fingers. That's the manicure. (laughs) And I went back to, uh, I did go back to New York after my R&R there, and I gathered some friends. I think we had a budget of about 800 bucks. And uh, Ed Lockman, you know, great cinematographer, was our camera person. Wow, um, nice. Somehow, because that was, we were all kind of punks back then. Yeah. My friend Laurie Frank uh, was the director. I was the producer and the writer. I found out that the producer means that when they need to get paid, they call you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the last time I was a producer. <laughs> but uh, we shot, we went out to Staten Island, New York, and uh, we took over a a place called Sonia's Hair Fashions, and uh, one Sunday afternoon, and shot the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. I had given myself a cameo as the hitchhiker. It's basically my wife is the one who goes to the beauty parlor, gets her hair done, it's under the dryer. She says she'd like to have a manicure, and um, and so uh, the beautician calls out manicure, and you hear this, and the saw starts <laughs> rubbing. And we had a, we put a special little silver door in the back. Oh, that's good. Cool. Uh, yeah. And uh, and out comes Leatherface, and we got some guy who was a bouncer at one of the hot nightclubs. He was like a, a navy power lifter. He was like six seven, you know, three twenty five, huge guy. And uh, he came out with the chainsaw, you know, menaced her. We kind of slowed the camera down and then he started, you know, sawing her fingers. She's screaming. You know, you think, oh, my God, her hands have been sawed off. (laughs) But then she kind of comes to, uh, you know, the uh, beautician kind of slaps her awake and she comes to and she goes, no, no, no. uh, Oh, (laughs) fabulous manicure (laughs) so that was good and she goes out of the shop she's all proud with her new hair and her nails and she goes look honey I got the best manicure ever (laughs) and I am as the hitchhiker my cameo is I'm in the pickup truck you know with my wine mark and my little green shirt and the whole deal when she steps into the truck I go hey that's great honey we should celebrate with some head cheese (laughs) and I had actually gone out to the store and bought a chunk of head cheese <laughs> which doesn't really look like much yeah. it's kind of beige yeah. but you Gelatinous. know that it's everything like right it's like the lips the tongue the scrotum whatever they don't need the eyeballs and that's you know. head cheese yeah oh. the head cheese so I said hey honey and, and in one of the takes I actually licked the head cheese <laughs> I do not recommend that <laughs> so I tried to sell that you know that just a little under six minutes I tried to sell it to Saturday Night Live there was a comedy show in New York then called Fridays. Oh, yeah. They didn't want it. Nobody wanted it. And so I went to work as a waiter to try to, you know, earn the money to pay off (laughs) (laughs) the people that had, you know, given me the money to to make it and edit it. That was a long, slow process. But uh, in the meantime, I was uh, working as a journalist. And uh, one of my paying gigs was for um, the late, great Omni magazine. That was a big, like, uh, computer, like, 
Yeah, science, 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 science yeah, fiction. Yeah. That's right. It was actually put out by Gold Key, which was Bob Guccione, Penthouse. Oh, and uh, in fact, the publisher was his girlfriend, Kathy Keaton. I had a good gig there. I had a great friend. It was one of the editors. I got a, uh, a gig uh, being flown out to Los Angeles. I think it was for uh, to poke around the making of uh, 2010, the Space Odyssey mm-hmm. sequel, mm-hmm. Peter Hyams. And so um, I went out to... Los Angeles, they put me up, you know, it was a junket. And I had a buddy named uh, Peter Seaman, Peter S. Seaman. He was an old high school buddy. And he and his partner, Jeff Price, were hot young writers because they had done Doc Hollywood, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know, they were like, you know, the hot (laughs) young comedy, you know, the writers. Socially, I went to have dinner at Pete's house, Pete and his wife, Nene. And I brought along a VHS copy of uh, The Manicure. You know, I thought it would amuse them. You know, I wasn't able to sell it and I was sinking (laughs) under the weight of my debt. And Pete said, this is great. He said, you know what? Jeff Price and I have an office right across the hall from Toby Hooper at Paramount. If you want to leave a copy of the manicure, I'll walk it into him tomorrow or whatever. And I said, yeah, you know, what the heck, sure. So I did. I left it with Pete with no great expectations. I finished my gig. I went back to New York. I got a call a couple of days later from Pete saying Toby liked it. And I got his home number from his secretary, but don't tell anybody. So I went, oh, okay. And he said, you know, call in a couple of days and, you know, see what happens. So I went, okay. So um, a couple of days later, I dialed Toby's number. And a miracle happened, which I later found out was a miracle. And that is that he answered the phone. <laughs> Never answered the phone. But in that moment, moment. He said, hello. I said, uh, hi, Toby. Uh, my name is uh, Bill Mosley. He goes, yeah. I go, yeah, I, I wrote the manicure, the Texas Chainsaw Manicure. He goes, oh, hey, I love the manicure, Bill. I love that. And I went, oh, good. Well, that's awesome. And he said, uh, yeah. He said, uh, now, who, who was the guy that played the hitchhiker? And I said, well, that was me, actually. He goes, well, that was great. I love that. And, you know, if I ever, you know, this, I'm condensing our conversation, right, but right. he said, you know, if I ever do a sequel, I'll, I'll keep you in mind. Wow. And I went, wow, <laughs> all right. My head started to yeah. expand again. <laughs> and so didn't hear from him for like, you know, a long time. I kind of figured, well, that's, that is what it is. I think it was actually long, like maybe 84 to 86 long. I mean, I'm so pretty long time, a couple of years. I kind of, that was a cold trail. One night I came back to my apartment in New York and the phone rang. It was a guy named Kit Carson. He said, hey, this is Kit Carson. And uh, you know what I heard of him? I think I'd read in like page six of the New York Post that, you know, he'd been married to Karen Black. He was kind of a hip screenwriter or whatever. And uh, he wrote Paris, Texas, among other things. I'm thinking in my head, who is this really? I think I'm getting pranked. Yeah. This isn't the time. Uh, but anyway, he uh, he said that he wanted uh, my address because he wanted to send me a copy of uh, Chainsaw 2 script. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay. So I figured what the heck. So I gave him my address. And a couple of days later, the script showed up in a manila envelope back in the old days as before computers. And I read it and I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was funny and weird and just, I, I just loved it. And I, I called Kit back and I told him that. And he said, well, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. You know, and he had told me to look at Chop Top. It might have even been Platehead back then, but I think there was some problem with a Masters of the Universe character of the same name. Oh, yeah. so I think it got, it had, got changed wow. to Chop Top. And uh, he said, um, you know, and I said, well, I love it. He said, well, we'll be in touch. Of course, when you hear that, it's like, yeah, okay. All right. (laughs) All right. The next call I got, you know, a day or two later was from Canon Films legal department. And they asked if I had an agent 
And I didn't. He said, well, let me get back to you. And I had met an agent from William Morris at a Christmas party a couple of months earlier. So I thought I'd call her. I'll call him up for you. Can't hurt. I said, great. So she called Canon Films Legal. And then she called me back and she said, well, got some good news and some bad news. And I said, well, what's the good news? And she said, well, they, they want you for this part. They want you to play this character Chop Top. And I said, well, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> and I said, well, what's the bad news? She said, well, they can only pay you scale. And at the time, as a freelance writer in New York, I was making maybe $250, $300 a week. Right. You know, uh, that was at most. And I said, well, geez, what's how much is scale? And she goes, oh, I don't know. I think it's like 1800 bucks a week. I was like, Whoa. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. the bad news? <laughs> she said, well, uh, there is more bad news. And I said, well, what's that? And she goes, well, you know, because it's got prosthetics on your head, they want you to shave your head. And I went, okay, yeah, that's no problem. She goes, so I told them that you were a working actor and that shaving your head was going to delay your career for months before your hair grew back. So... They've agreed to pay you $5,000 to shave your head. <laughs> <I'm> like, oh, <laughs> <my God." laughs> nice. And that was the beginning wow. of like, you know, that was the beginning of my career. Yeah. <laughs> so how much of Chop Top was on the paper? already and how much did you bring to the character as far as the characteristics and scratching the plate with the hanger and all, was all that stuff on oh, paper yeah. that was all on really? paper really? yeah a lot of a lot of the lines maybe 60 40 maybe toby really loved my improvisations yeah because you know they shaved my head man you know, I have a plate in my head and I'm all fucked up. So I really kind of was chopped up and you know, I didn't hurt anybody, but right. you know, I, <laughs> at least any, that any that I'm, I'm willing to admit. Yeah. But uh, so I was just, I was just having a ball and kid had some great lines. The radio station, I did some improvising where we first meet chopped up. You know, there's a little EXIT yes. that was yeah. improv from... Basically from Sesame Street. <laughs> you know, just a bunch of stuff like, lick my plate, you dog dick. That came out of nowhere. Really? You improv yeah, that? I oh, improv that. Because, nice. oh. you know, my family, we had the clean plate club. You know, sure. I was, I'm old enough so that, you know, we were told there were children starving somewhere. I don't know if it was <laughs> Europe or China or Korea. I don't know where it was. There were some starving children somewhere. For some reason, that all kind of popped out. And, uh, and so much of it, it was so organic. It was so much fun to do. We had one scene. It's in the radio station. Poor LG, who's a stretches engineer. <laughs> and I've smashed him up. And, and he's lying on his back on the floor of the radio station. It's very close sets. It's indoors. It's like 100 degrees. This was back where you actually had film in the camera and yeah. lights that were very hot. Poor LG. Lou Perryman is lying there. Tom Savini is right off camera with a blood pump. And he's got like a little, you know, some kind of a little tube that goes up LG's neck and through his hair. And then it just stops right at the, you know, the top of his hairline and so you know every time we do a take you know then there's you know Thompson <laughs> yeah. pumping and spraying blood all over LG's face and and I'm using a, a claw hammer which looks very s scary but it was actually 
made out of foam rubber with a coat hanger in the middle of it to kind of keep it together. Sure. After whacking LG a couple of times, sometimes the hammer would bend like a pretzel. So it would be like, cut, you know, and I'd look and there's hammer is all. (laughs) And I was just making stuff up. And I was going, if I had a hammer and I was going a one and a two and a three and incoming mail and (laughs) doing all this different stuff. Well, some of the, some of the takes, you know, we couldn't use because of the the props, but uh, some of them were pretty good. And finally, we had done like maybe 12 takes of this. We were all sweaty. And each time, poor LG had to be cleaned up and Tom had to reload with blood and everything. Uh, you know, it, was, it was, wasn't easy. And, um, and so finally, we had done it. You know, I thought a good take, take number 12. And Toby goes, uh, yeah, 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 that was great. Uh, okay, well, let, let's, uh, yeah, let's just uh, yeah, do one more. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, and I looked at Toby a little exasperated and I said, you know, am I doing something wrong, Tobe? And he goes, hell no, Bill. I'm just having fun watching you. <laughs> I just thought that that's the kind of director I always want to work with. I love this guy. Did and, you keep any of the props from the movie? I did. It could have been a sad story because the day we wrapped, Karen Hooper, Toby's wife, who was the wardrobe person knocked on my little you know honey wagon door <clears throat> and uh, was standing there with a open cardboard box in her hands and she said here this is for you and it was my costume the belt yeah. and the sneakers wow. and you know, the, you know the necklaces and a, you know something for my wrist and everything and, and I looked at it mind you this was way before eBay <laughs> <laughs> but I looked at this stuff and I said you know I would never wear this no. <laughs> And I I turned it down. No. No, my heart. (laughs) Well, you know, the good news is about 15 years later, a guy named Eric Lasher, who was the set photographer, he said, well, I'll take it. So I guess he had taken it and put it in his storage space or something. 15 years later, called me up. He lived in town and uh, called me up and said, "Uh, hey, do you want your Chop Top costume? Oh, Oh, wow. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and now I mean now I was you know older and wiser so right. I said yes and so uh, he gave it to me so nice. oh, that's awesome. yes. that's great yeah. man it's yeah. probably Happy worth ending. so much money oh yeah well there was just an auction profiles in history did an auction last month and Bill Johnson's chainsaw <laughs> from that movie went up for auction sold for twenty seven thousand dollars plus. 7700 in auction fees oh, <laughs> for the chainsaw. Oh, my God. Did he, did, he, did he even have it, or was it somebody else had collected it? I don't know if it came directly from him, and it was on consignment. I'm not sure. But, yeah, it's especially now, nowadays, the movie props, it's it's crazy. I have the plate, too. By the oh, way. you do? Oh, that's great. Wow. Only two people had plates, and the plates were basically made of sterling silver because they were, they were thin, light, and flexible. Yeah. And so Tom Savini had one, a guy named Sean McEnroe, who was the lead makeup artist on Chop Top, you know, part of Tom's, you know, I call it the house of pain, (laughs) Uh, but uh, he was one of the makeup guys and he took the other plate and Tom had the pre- radio station plate so it wasn't scored by Leatherface's chainsaw. Sean had the one that had the the scratch on it. So that was that. I never, didn't think much about it. You know, again, maybe 10, 15 years ago, even more than that, I got contacted on email from some guy in Seattle and he claimed to be Sean McEnroe's neighbor. And Sean, apparently after years of inhaling toxic chemicals as a makeup person, 
you know, had become very, he was almost blind. I mean, you know, some horrible story. He was, you know, in bad physical shape. And I think he had just said, you know, fuck it all and, and taken all of his props and things and just told this neighbor, opportunistic neighbor to uh, sell him, you know, you can have whatever you make on him. Sean did say, you know, in terms of the plate, contact Bill first. And so this guy, you know, out of nowhere comes this email saying, you know, hey, I've got the plate. How much do you give me for it? There was an enclosed picture in the email and I could tell that it was the plate. There was a certain notching. Sure. And, you know, that was the plate. And then I panicked. I just thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? Do I, you know, say 500 bucks? Do I say 5,000 <laughs> right. bucks? I, I don't want to flush him. I don't want to freak him out because I don't want him to put it on eBay and then I'm going to have to bid for my own plate, oh. you know, again, young millionaires. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, I was worried. And so I called up my friend Todd Bates. Todd was uh, a makeup guy and a collector. And I said, uh, how much do you think that plate, what should I offer this guy for the plate? And I think Todd said something like uh, 750 bucks or some some kind of fee like that, which wasn't unreasonable. I wrote the guy back and said, uh, you know, how about 750 bucks? He said, sold. So now the question was, how do I get it? He was in Seattle. I was here in Los Angeles. How do I get the plate? And he wanted a cashier's check. So there was oh, no wow. bags. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the Cornbugs cover artists is a guy named Frankensus, who's done a lot of artwork for Buckethead and his different albums. Another and, great and name. <laughs> Frank and Seuss, you know, was this Seattle artist. So I contacted, I'd never met him, but I'd paid him and gotten wonderful work from him. And so I contacted him. I said, hey man, here's the story. There's this dude in Seattle. He's got the plate, told him about the cashier's check. So he was all in for it because it sounded like cloak and dagger. Yeah. So <laughs> they, they, ended up, they ended up arranging a meeting at some kind of Seattle coffee shop yeah, or yeah. something. <laughs> you got the plate, you got the check. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they transacted. And then, and then uh, Frank and Seuss put the box, you know, I sent the box via UPS. <laughs> I was very excited about it. Oh my God, the box. And, you know, and there was like a little artwork that he had put in there just to, you know, Know, commemorate this Aww. cloak and dagger That's thing cool. and, and there awesome. was the plate it was a little tarnished but by golly there was the plate so I now have the plate as well. So that's, that's a happy story. <laughs> <laughs> so you return to that character in a movie that no one has seen yet, really. All American Massacre, right? Yes. What is that movie and what happened to it? That was another phone call one day. It was, I think it was probably 98 or 99. I'd become friends with uh, Toby Hooper's son, Tony, William Hooper, Tony. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, you know, very good with the computer, computer graphics. And back then he wanted to make like a little, you know, some kind of a short film and, and to be an example of his work. So you could basically take it around as a calling card and get a special effects graphic FX job. Yeah. And he said, um, I want to do this thing called All American Massacre and I want to make it kind of a prequel and a sequel at the same time, a prequel to... The original Chainsaw and then a sequel with Chop Top now in jail and reminiscing with like a Geraldo Rivera film crew, gotcha. you know, and do this whole thing. And I said, uh, there's no money in this one. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a favor for a friend. And yeah, I said, yeah. you know, I said, you know, I'd be, and he said, I got this guy that's really good, you know, knows how to do the chop top makeup. So I was just thinking, oh man, okay, I'll give you one day. And he said, uh, okay. I went out to his place in uh, the Valley and uh, the makeup guy, Todd Bates, was really, you know, very good with the chop top makeup. It was so funny because in the All-American Massacre, they used Buckethead. 
as Letterface. No way! They gave him a fat suit. Oh, he must have been stoked because he's like a string bean. He's like a chunky dude with a chainsaw. So we did it, and it ended up like starting out as like, you know, between five and ten minutes long, but then it just got, it got bigger and new ideas, and, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger until finally I think it just got too big, and it just kind of, you know, it's still unseen, it's still there somewhere. Now, was like over 20 years ago. Wow. Is it and complete? Has it been, been edited? Anything? I don't know. I've never or... seen the final the oh, final wow. draft, but I think it, it was definitely, it shot past like 50 minutes. I really have no idea. The good news is, is that because I did that, I said, I, you know, I said yes to it and showed up. I met Todd Bates. Todd really was good at the chop top makeup because he had put it on himself. He he loved to do makeups, you know, for Halloween. Right, stuff. right. A couple of months later, I got a call right around thing uh, Halloween. I got a call from a friend of mine who was the head of publicity for Universal City Walk, and he called me up and said, "Hey, you're a monster guy, right?" And I go, "Yeah." And he goes, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah." <laughs> and he goes, uh, "Well, you know, we have this little in-house show. It's a little show called the Igor Awards." I remember, oh, yeah, yeah. The Igor Awards. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, we we had a an MC for it, but he's dropped out. I was wondering if you wanted to MC the show. It's like outdoors on a little stage. It's, you know, some, uh, you know, universal people. We give them, you know, awards for yeah. doing stuff for universal. Well, can I come as Chop Top? And he said, uh, well, yeah, let me, let me ask. So he got, you know, he, he asked, I guess, and called me back and said, well, Chop Top isn't really a universal character, oh. but <laughs> because you were in Army of Darkness, you are considered part of the universal family, so Chop Top is cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, you know, and, and they were, there was a nice fee to it. And I said, well, you know, can I get my buddy Todd to do the makeup? They budgeted a little extra dough for Todd and an assistant. And so they made me up as Chop Top. And I emceed this little horror award show. And uh, I had, you know, I had like an old tuxedo and I was just in character the whole, and here, you know, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> the mummy, so uh, the director of the mummy. You know? <laughs> Does footage of this exist? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh, probably. oh that's yeah, awesome. One of the, uh, you know, and my then, she was probably like 13 year old daughter, my older kid. Mm -hmm was there with her friend because she knew that one of the award recipients was going to be Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, you know, they were like Hellbelly Deluxe. They were like punk kids. Uh, yeah. They were like totally up for it. So, you know, they, I brought them along and they got a nice seat in the front and everything. And they were going to meet Rob Zombie. So they play one of Rob's videos and then I go, and here he is, Rob Zombie. And Rob comes out and he he's looking at me like, what the? <laughs> and he and he says you know if you had told me that chop top was going to be emceeing the show i would have said you were crazy <laughs> and so he got i guess he had been nominated for many different kinds of awards but had never won anything so this was his first award the little demon statue for the igor awards <laughs> So he was very happy. And after the show was over, I took the girls backstage to meet Rob. Rob was there with his then girlfriend, Sherry, and his parents. I mean, he was very happy. This was, you know, like very fun for him. And we had a great time chatting and everything. And that was it. And I went my, my separate way. And then about a month later, if, if that, so probably in sometime in late November, early December of 99, I got a call at home from uh, Rob's then manager, Andy Gould. And Andy said, uh, hey, by the way, uh, Rob just got this screenplay greenlit. 
called uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, and he wants to know if you want to be in it. And I, you know, as an actor, I wasn't working much at that time. You know, right. we go up and down. And I said, uh, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, figuring there was probably some, you know, little part, but, you know, I didn't really know what, what he had in mind. And then he, so they, they sent a script over and he said, yes, it, the character's called uh, Otis Driftwood. Got the script and I started to read it. And I was thinking, you know, shit, man, this guy's in a, <laughs> he's in a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait a minute. Whoa. <laughs> I worked hard to hang on to that part. I think, I think Universal had some questions because I think they wanted, you know, name actors and everything. I think what saved me and Sid Haig, who played Captain Spaulding yeah. and, you know, these incredible character actors was that Rob was the star. So it was like Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. So it didn't really rely as much as a traditional movie on big name stars. That really saved our bacon and uh, got us rolling. Now, I had heard that you had said <laughs> you didn't personally feel like you truly discovered the character of Otis until it was almost at the end of filming when you were brought in back to do those, we'll call them interstitials, yeah. where you film them at Wayne Toss Studio, where you're right. doing the Run Rabbit Run monologue and things like that. What was it about those interstitials that made it click for you and go, okay, this is who this guy is? It's interesting because at first I thought that Rob wanted a, you know, his own version of Chop Top. Right. And so I think the early Otis was kind of more like that. An amazing thing happened. Rob kind of slowly, but you know, gently, but firmly pried my hand off Chop Top and led me to Otis, who is a completely different character. With Buckethead, it's, it's Chop Top. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, my yeah. God. It's like my security blanket, my, my, my teddy bear. <laughs> I can't leave Chop Top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but Rob, you know, gently, but firmly, you know, led me away to, uh, you know, a sexy, badass dude. Right. And I did not think of myself like that. That was not my self-image. It wasn't even like anything I really wanted to play. I mean, I was like, that's not me. That's not me. But Rob, I guess, saw that, which is fortunate. The whole production was kind of a learning experience. Like there's one scene where the cops show up, Tommy Tolls and Walton Goggins, they show up at the Firefly house to track down, you know, some missing kids or whatever. And I am in the front yard hiding behind some old rusty washing machine or something. And I walk out with a gun drawn to threaten the cops. I got this gun. I'm sauntering out. Now, that was good. And Rob said, that was good. Let's try it again. And this time, why don't you scratch your belly? I just thought, okay, I can do that. (laughs) So I came out and that was such a good direction. That's, you know, that's why I like, there's, there's a couple of directors I love working with Rob, certainly being, you know, toward the top of the list, if not at the top of the list. That was great direction. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't trying to get into the psychology of the actor. It was just simply giving me a, a an action yeah, that an was totally Otis, mm-hmm. you know, and totally informed me of the character. And and uh, and eventually, you know, we ran out of time. We were done, and I still was kind of. I, I, it was pretty much Otis, but um, we stopped filming, and then the footage was. We needed more time on screen, you know, screen time. So Rob started coming up with the interstitial stuff mm-hmm. just to kind of stuff the mattress, if you will, so that we would have more like a 90 minute movie instead of a 70 minute movie. Right. And uh, one of those things was the run rabbit run scene that uh, we did at Wayne Toth studio. Oh, yeah. Wayne, great makeup master, Wayne Toth. That was really when I did get Otis, you know, when I started going, you know, 
hunting humans ain't nothing but nothing. Right. I'll run like scared little rabbits. Run, rabbit! You know, and started screaming. <laughs> and uh, that was like, oh, that's when it really felt like, okay. Right. And then when we did Devil's Rejects, it really, it was, it was so much easier because that's what I kind of went back to to just kind of refresh myself about Otis. It was so much more fun doing devil's rejects in a way because i mean it was you know making a movie is hard work but it felt like with house of a thousand corpses it was kind of like kicking the tires and learn you know maybe you know figuring out how to buy the car right (laughs) and then and then once you've like transacted then devil's rejects was like taking it out for a spin right i had never done a sequel before i had never played the same character twice that's right and so it was like wow you know i already knew this guy So now it wasn't like finding the character. And I do a lot of low-budget independent movies where you basically, they fly you in, you know, you get in at night, you work the next day, the next couple of days, and then they fly you out. Because, you know, a lot of times that's all they can afford. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of rehearsal. I've, you know, and whenever anybody says rehearsal, it just sounds like a weird word. (laughs) (laughs) No idea what they're talking about. It's basically like, get out there, do your thing, get out of here. It's got some great, great writing, man. Especially that whole, uh, I am the devil. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Come on, you got to do it, man. You got to oh, do it. <laughs> I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's work. <laughs> <laughs> no, the whole scene is fantastic, stuff, man. Great stuff. Heavy, heavy. And Rob, you know, Rob has really got great, great dialogue. Yeah. There's nothing more fun for an actor than saying cool shit because i have had to say a lot of uncool shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not as fun. it's harder to memorize oh sure sure it doesn't make any sense how much of that was rob in, in uh, devil's rejects how much was it was it you improvising i would say it was 92 percent rob and eight percent me mm, wow yeah the only um improv that i remember right off the top of my head was we had a long scene i i drive up in the van with banjo and sullivan we're gonna go uncover you know dig up the guns, guns right basically i'm gonna go kill them yeah And we had a long, you know, parked the van. And then there was this long walk before we got to the kill site, as I like to designate it. (laughs) And and so we needed some, we needed, you know, some filler. We needed some quick dialogue to kind of carry us from the van to the kill site. Just standing there roasting and Lancaster. Rob came up and said, why don't you say, is that your wife's pussy stink on my gun? Right. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> what? And he said, yeah, yeah, go ahead and say it. I go, oh, okay. <laughs> so that's what I, you know, I said, I, I said that. I said, is that your wife's pussy stink on my gun? And then I ad-libbed, hope it don't rust the barrel. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that, that was, that was my contribution. Wow. <laughs> so with that, I mean, obviously you can't give away stuff about the new movie but can you talk a little bit about where you take the character if there are some of these amazing lines in the movie anything I can't. Nothing. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Well, you can yeah. say, we do know that it, it is wrapped. It's done, right? Yes. Post-production. We yes, we finished. We finished about two months ago. Okay. Nice. And we did shoot it around Los Angeles and Santa Clarita. Did a day at Sybil Brand, the old uh, abandoned women's prison mm. here in LA. 
Uh, yeah, it was a local production. Oh, and Chatsworth. Oh, okay. I don't want to oh. short shrift. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Chatsworth. Home of Greg Nicotero. Right, right so, that's right. Oh, hey, man. <laughs> was it something that was created, or do you know, if it was something that was created because of the fans kept asking about it? Or was it part of the plan all along? I don't think it was part of the plan. I think it was basically because there was a persistent demand or mm-hmm. longing, at least, uh, by the fans for another one. Because we did Devil's Reach in 2005 maybe or four or five so you know so it's been 13 years yeah. that's, that's <laughs> a long it's a long time between sequels but right now that the you know the cat is out of the bag and rob's been posting stuff on instagram mm-hmm. some pictures and different things the fans are very excited about oh, it yeah yeah. I'm excited too. I the one problem for me is it, it's a little frustrating because he's just started a you know a big fabulous tour with Marilyn Manson. You know if he it would just you know not do that, you know, he, could, <laughs> he could be in the he could be in the uh, you know the, the editing room. Right, right. Oh, man. <laughs> Rachel would. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Bring it over here. <laughs> uh, so so we have to kind of wait for him to you know him and Marilyn. And then uh, apparently it's due out sometime in, quote, early 2019. So that to me is anywhere from January to March. Right. Is there a physical transformation that you have to put yourself through to get to Otis besides shaving your head and growing a beard? Well, those are, big. <laughs> those are pretty big. Uh, I grew that. I grew a beard for about 16 months. Wow. wow. And uh, which actually it worked great because I went on my honeymoon to Iran yes. uh, last uh, October, <laughs> November. And so I fit right in. So I looked, you know, like a like a mullah. But, uh, you know, so that was good. My wife didn't really like the beard. So 16 months is a that's a yeah, long that, yeah, time yeah. for, you know, your wife not to like your beard. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, I didn't like it that much. I mean, I, I did like it, but also every time I would, you know, take a sip of coffee, I'd have to blot. You know, I did a lot of blotting. I would always carry around like a Kleenex yeah. or like a paper towel and like blot all the juice off my <laughs> 16 my months is a long uh, lead way for him to did he just call you so what do you get that call say hey we're doing it start growing a beard it's gonna well, be a while <laughs> something, something like that actually you know it was, it was very interesting because I had to protect the beard and at one point I did get a part I did play uh, Lincoln oh. uh, this was a you know <laughs> perfect yeah. Yeah. Perfect. of all the parts and, uh, <laughs> created a lot of, you know, fear because, you know, Lincoln does not have the mustache. He's got Uh-oh. kind of the, the chin strap. That's right. He does not have the mustache. So uh, there was some discussion about that, but uh, I went ahead and played Lincoln. And uh, fortunately, by the time we started shooting, the mustache had grown back. So nice. And the beard was still. Did you ever slip long. into Otis as Lincoln? <laughs> I don't know. We, we worked so hard for so, for so few days. I, I may have. I <laughs> Run, Confederate rabbit, run. I, I like that. Well, Mar- Mary Todd Lincoln was played by Amanda Plummer. Oh, oh wow. So that, yes. Exactly. Everybody says that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it was Lincoln. Oh, yeah. And Mary Todd was Amanda Plummer. It's serious. She was awesome, by the way. Oh, my God. What a great actor and really cool. I, I love Amanda. Now, is that movie out or when are we going to see it? Uh, no, but that's that's a short film. So that's more like a 20 minute film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, written and directed by a, a woman named Kendall Courtney Klein, who is, uh, you know, pretty young. She's still in her late 20s. We've done ADR. I know that's all done. I think there's a, you know, a long 
post-production period, but uh, that should be coming out sooner than later, I think. Is it a revenge story? Is it the uh, revenge of Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> it's, I've been it's, hoping for that uh, you for know, a long time. I, I can't really <laughs> talk much about it, but it is a, uh, there's a seance. Oh. oh. All right. Yeah. All I can say. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I was looking at your IMDb. You've got like 22 projects that are either in pre-production or coming out in the next year. That's yeah, so insane. If, if, only, if only, you know, a third of those were true. I mean, right, that would right. be... <laughs> Don't believe what you read on the internet, I guess. <laughs> whoa, whoa, is that true? <laughs> well, there are a couple that uh, have somewhat seen the light of day. post-production, yeah. Crep- then, Crepitus? Yeah, yeah. Did Crepitus. a premiere, right, recently? Yes, yeah. yeah, a screening, yeah. Yeah, and how did that go? It's the kind of movie that I love to make because it's the kind of movie where... Well, I was, you know, a scary clown. So that's, you know, you can't beat that. Yeah. And actually, it was funny. It was also shot in Michigan, Sheboygan, Michigan in the winter. So I like that part. Being from Illinois, sometimes I like being a weather tourist. <laughs> <laughs> wow, snow. Great. Oh, see you later. <laughs> Gotta go back to Southern Cal. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I like that young filmmakers who are into it. You know, I, I, I like that. I mean, that's, yeah, I like that spirit that I, you know, I feed on that and like to show up and, you know, kick some butt. Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. Then I was just in Detroit about uh, yeah, just almost a month ago doing a scary puppet movie. So oh, nice. a scary clown to scary puppet, and then it was called uh, Handy Dandy. And I worked <laughs> oh, with a great actor that I'd never worked with before. It was a great guy named Bill Oberst Jr. He had also played Lincoln. We were kind of comparing Lincoln notes. <laughs> he said, "Oh yeah, I went down. I was doing Lincoln, and I did all this preparation." And I said, "Well, what's?" What was the name of the of the film? He said uh, it was called uh, Abraham Lincoln versus the Zombies. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome! <laughs> All right, and, you know, you know, you're a good, you know, you're an actor, man. When you like do the research and read all the Lincoln books, <laughs> you know, to get ready for Abraham Lincoln versus the Zombies. <laughs> totally has my respect. Totally has my respect. Well, speaking of puppets, one of the videos for the project that you do oh with Phil gosh. Anselmo was right. all puppets. An amazing yeah. job. Yeah. Tell us about how that project, I mean, you and Phil Anselmo. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. He's another huge horror fan, so I'm yes, assuming there's yes. a connection there. I got a call, you know, I don't know, four or five years ago saying, would would I want to interview Phil Anselmo for uh, some kind of a website called Artist Direct? And they were doing some kind of a special where, you know, musicians would interview actors and actors would interview musicians, kind of a, you know, Q&A cross Q&A. I said, uh, yeah, you know, they wanted me to interview Phil and Phil would then interview me. Uh, you know, I would, you know, be the horror guy. He would be the music guy. And so I met with Phil, did our artist direct interview. The only problem was I didn't know that much about music and he knew a hell of a lot more about horror movies. Than I, did. <laughs> so I was kind of just learning at the feet of the master. Like, oh, uh-huh, whoa, really? <laughs> I mean, he had a lot of, you know, he's turned me on to some very obscure movies. When I I ended up going down to his house finally to, to do the Bill and Phil EP. He pulled out a movie called Defula. And that's actually, that's out there. It's black and white, D-E-A-F-U-L-A. And it's basically a, a Dracula. It's a vampire movie uh, in sign language. It's like, you know, for deaf Deaf wow. actors and yeah, so wow. <laughs> Defula, yeah, it's amazing. Go for it. So when it, you know when you know you know he can pull that out, it's like okay, all right, all right, <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I used to bug him. You know, we became pals, and he would also um, show up on the uh, the you know the horror convention circuit sometimes. So I would see him. We were you know pals, his girlfriend Kate, and but I I thought you know I think it would be cool to like do some music with Phil. 
And so I kept bugging him. And I realized now that it was kind of like probably a kid with a garage band uh, saying to Paul McCartney, you know, we really need a basic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> really, we need a bass player, Paul. <laughs> Sir Paul. Uh, you know, and finally, I think, uh, it, you know, it amused Phil and he would say no. And, and then it, you know, it finally annoyed him. And then finally, one day he just said, uh, you know what? I got four days on the month of... February or whatever it was a couple years ago between my girlfriend's parents leaving and me having to do some gig or something. So if you can get to my house in Louisiana, in the woods in Louisiana, uh, we'll see what we can do. So I said, fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I cashed in some air miles and flew down, spent the night in New Orleans, rented a car, drove over Lake Pontchartrain and uh, found Phil's place. That night, we went over some of the lyrics I'd brought. The next day, he'd picked some out, and he was going to do the music. You know, the clock is ticking. I stayed there at his house, and I said, well, how do you want to do these, uh, approach the vocals, thinking that he was going to sing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he said, no, no, man, I'll, I'm doing the music. You you can sing. Oh! Paul <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh, McCartney going, no, I'll, I'll be playing the violin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was uh, that was interesting. So uh, the night before the, you know, and he wanted to do all the vocals in one day. Oh and my god! It was god. day three of four, and four was like you're out of here. So this was like you know the big day. Well, that night I ended up getting some food poisoning, and oh. uh, so I spent the night like you know puking, <laughs> and uh, you know with all the you know with all the acid and everything coming up, and I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm supposed to sing tomorrow. So I got up early the next day. I finally fell asleep, got up early, went to the local Piggly Wiggly, and I got some, uh, some juice boxes of apple juice because my singing teacher said that that coats as opposed to water, which is kind of, you know, it doesn't coat as much. And I also got some yogurts, came back and was like ready to go. And so we went in. Phil likes to double everything. So you sing one line. And then, you know, you ought to sing the same line again. He doubles. I learned that. At one point during the day, I got, uh, you know, a little sick again. <laughs> so I remember like just saying, you know, hold on just a second. <laughs> Running out of the studio outside and puking into a bush. <laughs> you know, all the yogurt or whatever. <laughs> the old gumbo. And uh, and then, you know, and then walking back in, rubbing off my mouth and going, let's go. <laughs> So that's when I felt like I felt rock and roll. Yogurt is the worst thing to vomit up. When I was pregnant, I ate yogurt and pickles and rice like all the same time. And then I threw up and I'll never forget that. It was in the office depot parking lot in Burbank. Every time we pass by, I'm like, oh. Oh my God. Is there a little stain on the Probably. So nasty. Fuck you, morning sickness. I I hated you. Wow. And that the vocals on that project are darn good. You're singing high notes. You're doing a lot of singing. Yeah, it was a that was a long day. Yeah, I don't know where that note came from. I mean, that was well, it's all that's the years of vocal lessons yeah, in that, the valley. That did help. <laughs> you know, those vocal lessons help not only for singing but also for just acting in general. Sure, just, you know, it's like a gym for the voice. Is yeah. what I like to think of it. So, yeah, yeah God bless John Deaver, man. I <sighs> you know hit those high notes, and uh, out of that came Bill and Phil songs of darkness and despair. <laughs> 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 and the uh, the album art, the, it's an interior. You know, if you get the vinyl, the interior. Has a 
picture of, of Phil and me in um, black monks' robes with hoods, you know, obscuring our faces, very sinister. Right. <laughs> and then the uh, then there's kind of a before and after picture, and the, the hoods are down, and we're we're holding his kittens, <laughs> his rambunctious kittens, and they're all like scratching at us, and trying to jump out of our arms. <laughs> uh, songs of darkness and despair, and then and then the yeah the the great uh, puppet uh, video for yeah. Dirty Eye. So good. Amazing. I know you're a big horror fan. Is there any uh, horror movies out now that you like or you're drawn to or performance that you're drawn to? Or? I like most of the ones that come out. I loved Get Out. I mean, I saw that yeah, a couple of times. I great. thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I just love the, the story, the idea, the, you know, the reverse, if you will. I just thought that was fantastic. A Quiet Place I liked. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I just saw the movie Hereditary. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. was uh, you know, a good slow burn. Mm-hmm. I think that, like the most exciting movie I've seen recently is a movie by a director named Lee Wanell, who mm-hmm. did the original Saw yeah. with James yes. Wan. Yeah, yeah. He did a movie called uh, Upgrade, yes. which yeah. is more science fiction, yes. but it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I just love that. Is there a character in terms of the horror genre that you would like to play? Every once in a while, there's somebody saying, uh, you know, there's Freddy Krueger, right? Because everybody wants to remake all these mm. great '80s horror yeah. movies, and I'm not, I'm not really into that. Speaking of Freddy Krueger and Robert Englund, I did. I reprised the character of Mayor Buckman in a movie called 2001 Maniacs Field of Screams, directed by Tim Sullivan, hmm. and uh, that that was enough. <laughs> How about you, 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 this creative you know, guy on camera, have you ever thought about going behind the camera and directing? I think I would just be too impatient. I oh. think I would want to kill actors. <laughs> Some of the actors I've seen, I just really want to just grab their throat. <laughs> Throttle them. But I do like to write, so I mean, I, I write right. stuff. That just hasn't called to me, I gotta say. You ever miss journalism? You know, I do. I had a great run. You know, I don't miss the fact that uh, journalists are by and large underpaid and there's no union protection right. and all that kind of stuff. You know, at least for the freelancers. I caught it right when it was, there was a great time. You know, I loved writing for Omni. I loved interviewing scientists. I interviewed Linus Pauling. I interviewed... Uh, that was my hero, man. Yeah, I interviewed Edward Teller. I mean, that Jeez, was really wow. weird. Wow. He was mad at me. He, <laughs> he did not like me. Oh, man. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, some very, some very cool scientists and uh, you know I, I certainly interviewed Timothy Leary for Psychology Today magazine so I was able oh, to use nice. that to meet people and to uh, really just satisfy my curiosity I love science you know I, yeah, I love all that stuff so did you ever uh, OD on vitamin C after Linus Pauling no I didn't he gave me my uh, vitamin regimen which I've taken now pretty religiously for I think I interviewed him in 1980 I did it was 1986 man that's great and he gave me a vitamin regimen and then his vitamin regimen, which I still take every day, That's which awesome. is, uh, you know, mega doses of vitamin A, D, E, B complex. And um, I take two grams of vitamin C a day yep. and then a vitamin mineral. Pill. Yeah, that's what he would say. The guy's got two Nobel Prizes. He did. <laughs> he was the only one with two yep. unshared Nobel that's Prizes. Right. That's oh, right. That's right. Chemistry on peace. Yes, and it was very funny because I, I interviewed him right after I'd gotten my head shaved for Chop Top. <laughs> And I, awesome. I picked up, I, I borrowed a car from my brother in, in like Palo Alto. And I drove down uh, Interstate, you know, one, whatever the, you know, the, the Route 1 is. And uh, 
Lion is Pauling had a fabulous house in, um, I'm thinking of, okay, it's, there was a big landslide there. It's a fabulous place to go. What am I thinking of? The big one, Sur. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, thank yes, you. Yes. Big Sur. Yeah. And I remember going to his house. I got out of the car to like push a buzzer on his gate that was probably a quarter of a mile up on the road. And there's a long driveway. And I got out of the car to push the buzzer or whatever. Got out of the car to do something. And the short form is that uh, the door closed on me and locked. Oh, so man. I ended up having to hop the fence and walk all the way down to Linus Pauling's house, knock on the door. He opens the door. He's like 86 at the time. I'm standing there with my head shaved. And I said, uh, hi, Dr. Pauling, can I borrow a coat hanger? <laughs> 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 in true chop top form. Went, so he gave me a coat hanger oh, and I walked man. all the way back up and you know got the car open and managed to get down. And I had a wonderful conversation with him. He was at the time disproving the existence of icosahedral quasi-crystals. Because yes. it was oh. some kind of another form of matter that yep. you know somebody had claimed and he was debunking it. And I was thinking, you know, he's pretty sharp for 86, man. <laughs> yeah. As an actor, everybody has an opinion about vitamins and, right. you know, different medical treatments and things. I'd been interested in vitamins, but I hadn't really had a particular, you know, regimen that was something I could trust. And he gave me his, as I say, I've been doing it ever since. So Dude, I love all these stories. It's fascinating. <laughs> Bill, thank you so much, man. That was amazing. Good night. Oh, oh good night. Good night. Good night. This was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode number 19. Special thanks to our guest, Bill Mosley. Follow him at Chop Top Mosley on Instagram and Twitter, Bill Mosley on Facebook, and ChopTopsBBQ.com for all your horror needs. Look out for his film, Cynthia, starring Sid Haig and Scout Compton. We love you, Scout. Also, Crepitus, Rob Zombie's Three from Hell next year, and a bunch of other stuff in horror conventions near you. If you are so inclined, we would absolutely love it if you stop by iTunes to rate and write us a quick review. It helps the show get found, grow, and continue to get amazing guests for you. Thank you for listening and being such an important part of the show and our Boo Crew family. Don't forget, if you're in the Southern California area, July 28th and 29th, stop by our table at the Midsummer Scream Halloween and Horror Festival and say, hey, get some stickers, buttons, and stuff. Tickets at MidsummerScream.org and are 25% off with the code BooCrew at checkout. Trevor for the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Tim Timebomb, Leone D'Antonio, Lauren and Trevor Shand, Austin Wilkin, and Rachel Tahada. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, Chopped and Sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation. It's time for this a boogeyman to boogie.